I knew when I started YouTube that at some point I wanted to make a really good video about how to study for exams. And I knew that I could do it because I'd given a talk about it and I knew the subject very well. But I reasoned at the time that at the moment I don't know how to do video. And so if this is my first video, it's going to be absolutely crap. Whereas if it's my 101st video, then at that point it might be actually good. Ali Abdal is a name people associate with productivity at all levels. With over 1.5 million subscribers and a book on the way, how does a student of medicine start doing courses and then become a YouTuber and a podcaster? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. So, when you meet someone new and the topic of work comes up, and people ask you what you do for a living, do you go for doctor or do you go for YouTuber? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> normally I go, I go for doctor. I still view the YouTuber thing as sort of a side hustle, but because I took a break from medicine about six months ago, that was when the pandemic, sort of mid-pandemic, so I haven't really met new people slash, slash had to answer that question for a while. These days, I guess what I tell people is, is I'm a doctor, but I'm on a bit of a sabbatical right now. And yeah, I just making silly internet videos. <laughs> you still describe them that way? I like to describe them that way, yeah. <laughs> it depends who I'm talking to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to be a bit like self-deprecating about it. Let's go to the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. Wow, how was that? How were you there for long? I was there for only about a year. And then when I was like one or two, we moved to Lesotho, which is a country in Southern Africa. Yeah, I went with my mom and my brother and my grandma. And we stayed there for five or six years. Wow. And then went wow. back to Pakistan for a year and then moved to the UK when I was like eight years old. So I've been in the UK for the last 18 years now. So most of your memories obviously are going to be of the UK, but do you remember anything from those apparently extremely active times where you ended up living in three different places? Yeah, quite a lot. Uh, had a lot of friends, used to watch Pokemon coming home from school. Yeah, it was, it was good times, I guess. When you're young and you're living in a different country, you don't really feel like it's abnormal. It just feels like your life. And so mm -hmm. it's only when I came to the UK that I realized that, oh, people here have been living here all their lives. And that, that, that's a bit weird. <laughs> that's fantastic. Based on those experiences, what sort of kid were you? Apart from one that watches Pokemon, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, Pokemon. I feel like I was always a massive nerd. Like I always used to do well in school and really take pride in doing well in school. I remember there was this one time where um, my mom said I could have anything for my birthday uh, within reason. And I asked for a Pokemon stationery set, you know, like pencils and rulers and stuff. And I kept it at the top of my cupboard just so I could use it to do my homework. Because I was like, homework is special. And I want to do special homework with this special Pokemon set. So I think I was, I was that kind of weird kid. <laughs> That's fantastic. How early in your life... Did you start having any interest for like biology or medicine or, or was that like a later life sort of thing? Yeah, when I was like really young, I used to tell people that I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. That was like when I was five or six. I didn't really know anything about it, but my mom was a doctor and I thought, oh, that seems cool. I, I guess I'll, I'll be a doctor when I grow up. I think at the time it was just a way to impress adults at parties and things. And then sort of the, the idea of doing medicine never really left me. Partly it's because I'm Asian and when you're Asian and you have good grades, it's just like the default path. <laughs> and yeah, partly because I kind of thought that, you know what, I, I, I want a job where I'm not just sat behind a desk all day and medicine seems like it would be cool. And then later on in life, as I was making the decision to actually apply to medical school, I reasoned that everyone says that university is the best time of your life. And when you're a medic, you're at university for six years, whereas for everything else, you're only at university for three years. So I thought, you know what, six years at university is better than three. 
let's go for med school. Was it what did they promise you? Was it the best time of your life? Oh, it was sick. It was so good. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How early in your life were you like on the internet as a consumer of things? Hmm. It was when I was, I think, seven years old that me and a friend from school, we wanted to make some money. So we thought, you know what? Like this friend said to me, oh, there's this really cool website called Google. And if you go on Google and type in Blastoise Pokemon card, you can find a picture of it and then you can print it out and then you can stick it onto a piece of cardboard and you can sell it because you can because people will think it's real. I feel like that's my first real memory of being being on the Internet, looking on this website called Google and trying to find uh, pictures <laughs> oh, of Pokemon cards to, to pirate and sell. Uh, <laughs> so I think I was always a somewhat so, somewhat entrepreneurial. Then it was only really coming <laughs> coming to the UK and starting high school when I was 11 or secondary school in the UK. I remember vividly there was there was one lunchtime where we happened to be in the computer room and I saw some kid who was one year older than me. He, he would have been 12. He was on the Google homepage, but he was like right click view source and he was just looking through the source code of the page. And that was the moment where I fell in love with the idea of coding. I was like, oh my God, that guy's the coolest person in the world. He's looking at source code. And then from that point, I decided to, I was like, you know what? I'm going to teach myself how to code. I'm going to learn this. It's going to be fun. Yeah, that was how I kind of got involved in, in the internet, really. Why did you went for like the medical career instead of something like computer science? Or did you just decide to learn of your own? Like what happened there with that passion? Yeah, so when I was 12, I started to teach myself how to code. And I became a freelancer working on websites like, you know, rentacoder.com. And I would be competing with all these other people and trying to undercut the market. And I'm, I, you know, I, I was 12 at the time. So I usually managed to undercut the market except people in India. For some reason, people in India were still somehow undercutting me. And it was really annoying. Uh, <laughs> I will never forgive them for that. But over the next few years, I tried to make various schemes for making money online involving coding. And when I got to around about age 16, where I was really deciding, what do I want to do with my life? Because in, in the UK, we decide fairly, fairly early on. I was considering doing computer science because that was what I used to do in my spare time. And I loved making websites and stuff. But then I thought that, you know what? Being a doctor who knows how to code sounds more interesting than being a coder. <laughs> that was the main factor that pushed me towards medicine rather than computer science. And I think at the time I kind of reasoned that, hey, if, I, if I'm a doctor, then I can create a product in the medical space because I know how to code. And I'm kind of proud of myself for having that realization very early on. It's not quite how it ended up working, but I think that insight was, <laughs> you know, changed the course of my life. Yeah, tremendously. From what I have heard, you have a very interesting path that actually led you to YouTube. Mm. So if I'm not mistaken, it had to do with some courses that you were putting online. So what's the story behind that? Yeah, so I actually wanted to be a YouTuber since like 2008. Since I discovered oh, this wow. guy, I don't know if you know him, uh, called Kurt Hugo Schneider. No, that's wow. That's not I'm even familiar with. What does they do? He makes really good covers of popular songs on YouTube. And I think like he was one of the first few people that I discovered to start doing that. And he is like, he plays lots of different instruments and he has friends who are really good at singing. And so he would do a cover of, I don't know, Apologize by One Republic, where he would play the piano and the drums and the guitar and his friends would sing. At the time, I thought this was like the coolest thing in the world. And I still think to an extent it's the coolest thing in the world. And so I always had this dream that, you know what, one day I want to be a YouTuber where I am producing songs and my friends are singing along because I, I had friends who could sing really well. And I tried doing that on and off for a few years. I, I just never really took it seriously. Completely separately, while I was in medical school, I set up a company helping other people get into med school. And I was teaching courses for these entrance exams. And a few years into this, 
I thought that I, I'd, I'd been reading a lot about like startups and marketing and this sort of stuff. And this concept of content marketing was big back in the day and still is to an extent today. And I thought that, you know what? No one is making videos on YouTube as like a content marketing device. And the companies that are, are doing it really badly. So I thought, you know what? Why don't I make YouTube tutorials about how to get into med school? And then if people think I'm legit, then they'll sign up to my paid course. <laughs> so that's how my YouTube channel started as a content marketing strategy for my business. And then very quickly I realized, hang on, there's an interesting gap in the market here for someone to be like the UK medical school doctor vlogger. Because at the time no one was doing it. And I thought, you know what, this has legs, let's start taking it seriously. And that was three and a half years ago. Two things here. I'm surprised at how often during these sessions, a lot of success boils down to being able to say, hey, there's a gap of people trying this specific thing or the people trying it are just making a terrible job at it. And it leads to all this adventure. It's, it's impressive how often I hear this. But I have two questions there. Was the website for the courses successful before you head to YouTube? Or like how, how far did it go before you had that idea of heading into video? I started the company in 2013 and I started YouTube in 2017. So it was four years and the company did, did quite well. I think we did 10K year one, 100K year two, like 200K year three. I was making like ridiculous amounts of money for, for a medical student at the time. After a few years, our growth started to kind of stagnate a little bit. There were new competitors coming in the market. And so I thought, you know what, we need like, we need a Hail Mary. We need something big that helps us survive as a business amidst all the competition. And I thought, you know what, it's all about content marketing. Like no one is doing this well. And yeah, that was, <laughs> that was where YouTube came about. Sheesh. How did you find your first YouTube audience, how did you, was this a steady growth from the very start or, or were, were there spikes in the road that actually got you that momentum that you needed? Yeah, so early on the growth, the, the journey was very slow. I was looking through my analytics. It, it took, I was making two videos a week for six months before I hit a thousand subscribers. So it took me 52 videos to hit a thousand subscribers. And that was like very, very, very agonizingly slow. Then I did a video about my desk setup. <laughs> And that was the first video I did that like really, it got a few thousand views rather than a few hundred views. And it caused my subscriber count to increase because suddenly people who weren't in this niche audience of medical school applicants, they were finding my video. A few months later, there was one video that I made that went viral, which was a video about how to study for exams. And the weird thing is that I'd sort of planned this out. I knew when I started YouTube that at some point I wanted to make a really good video about how to study for exams. And I knew that I could do it because I'd given a talk about it and I knew the subject very well. But I reasoned at the time that, okay, at the moment, I don't know how to do video. And so if this is my first video, it's going to be absolutely crap. Whereas <laughs> if it's my 101st video, then at that point, it might be actually good. And so I think I, f I did about 80 videos before I made this one video. And that caused my subscriber count to go from 4,000 all the way up to like 20,000 within the space of a few weeks. Plus the fact that I, I had, I did like a big name, a, a collaboration with a, with a much bigger YouTuber at the time. So those two factors really contributed to the skyrocketing growth very early on. And then it would be kind of slow and steady and then I'd have a viral video and then it would go up and then slow and steady and then another viral video. So that's kind of been the story of my, my YouTube channel. Like once a year, I'll get a video that goes viral and that really skyrockets the growth for a short period of time. Regarding the collaboration that you managed to do, uh, a lot of people, especially in early days, and even I think a lot of us who do this professionally have been, and have been doing it for a while, still haven't quite nailed down how to do collaborations consistently. So I'm kind of curious about how you nailed one so early on. What was the process for that? Yeah, so when I started YouTube, I was on zero subscribers and this guy was on like 30,000. 
and I thought, you know what, like he was, he was a student at my university. Uh, name was Ibsmo. He was doing like vlogs about life at university. And I was thinking, you know what, in the, in the back of my mind, I was thinking one day I want to do a collab with this guy. And it ended up happening fairly organically. We both happened to be at an event. He said hello to me. And at that, at that point, I had a few thousand subscribers. And so he kind of, he, he, he knew of me because it was quite a small community. And he's the one who suggested, oh my God, we should do a collab someday. And I was like, oh my God, yes. Like the stars were aligning because I was really scared. I didn't want to have to, I, I didn't want to approach the conversation. I just wanted to be his friend. And he's the one who suggested it. So I was like, hell yeah. And then he messaged me a few weeks later being like, hey, shall we do that collab? Do you want to come over to my college? And I, and I was over the moon. I was like, oh my God, this could be my big break. And so I pulled out all the stops to make this video happen and tried to make it as good as possible. It just like worked, worked out really well. Since then, I've done a few collabs and none of them have had anywhere near that level of success. <laughs> I think because, you know, I was on 3K and he was on 60K at the time. There's a big, you know, subscriber discrepancy there. Wow. All right. At what point, and this is more personal curiosity than anything else, at what point did the YouTube started taking over what you were doing? At what point did it stopped being a thing to redirect to your courses and started being your main show? Oh, good question. I think within a few months, it stopped being a content marketing strategy for the courses and instead became a, wow, this could be fun. I can vlog life as a medical student. And that's just kind of interesting. And so most of my content, like when I was on a few thousand subscribers, was medical school vlogs and monthly favorites and hey guys I read this book this month and this is what I thought of it moving away from the medical school niche it's it's like that story that a lot of people say that you start off really small with a very tiny niche and you slowly expand it over time so my niche at the start was people applying to medical school at Cambridge University in the UK which is like I don't know a very very small number of people and then yep. slowly expanded to people applying to medical school across the UK and then slowly expanded to students trying to study for exams and then slowly expanded to people interested in like tech and productivity. And, and so each time, every few months, I sort of expanded the niche a little bit. And then over time, I've just kind of thought that I knew that the bulk of my audience was students, but because I was on the verge of graduating from medical school, I knew that that wasn't sustainable in the long run. And so I started shifting more towards tech and then landed up in this area of productivity where I still am today. You think the winning strategy for a lot of channels is to follow that step of opening up the sort of targeting that you're doing as it goes on. Do you conceive at any point where YouTube will become your main job instead of this is still just a side gig? Hmm. It was about 18 months into it that YouTube started making more money than I was making as a doctor. That just continued to grow like exponentially compared to my doctor salary, which stayed flat, obviously. Up until August 2020, I was still doing medicine full time and YouTube part time. And then I took a break from medicine, intending to travel the world, but then the pandemic happened. And so now I've ended up in this weird place where I'm kind of a full-time YouTuber, but... By pure accident. By pure accident, yeah. I never intended to be a full-time YouTuber. <laughs> You're a full-time YouTuber by accident because you decided to take a break of medicine in the middle of a pandemic. Exactly. Like, that's a sentence right there. <laughs> exactly. It makes me sound very, like, mercenary. Like, why would you take a break in the middle of a pandemic? <laughs> but I always kind of point out that, no, no, I planned to take a break a year before the pandemic started. That's just how long the medical thing is. And so unless you apply for a job a year in advance, you don't have a job that August. And it just so happened that the pandemic happened <laughs> six months later. So now I've, I've ended up in, in this weird position where I sit at home all day making, making YouTube videos and teaching courses. And I'm writing a book now, which is, which is fun. But it's not really what I thought I'd be doing with my life. So yeah, it, feel, it feels a bit weird. Between now that you're writing a book, between dedicating more of your time in YouTube, how has your life beyond work? Has your life tangentially changed due to the explosion in YouTube following? 
Did you have more difficulties explaining to people what you work on? Do you ever get recognized in places that you don't expect? Yeah, so I get recognized on the streets somewhat often. Uh, earlier today, wow. actually, I, w I went for a walk to get some coffee from a van <laughs> near my house. And some guy recognized me. He said, hey, you're that famous guy from Cambridge, aren't you? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Oh, wow. I actually said, he said, you're that famous geezer from Cambridge. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's me. I'm the famous geezer. And he and I ended up having a chat. He's also a scientist. He started his own podcast where he interviews scientists about like biotechnology and things like that. And he said, I'd love to have you on my podcast. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> that was kind of nice. I guess in, in terms of other ways, my life has changed. I now have a team of like seven other people helping out with the YouTube and the business and stuff. And so a lot of my time is now spent on management and I'm reading books about management and about goal setting and OKRs and like one-on-one -on -one meetings and all these things. And I never thought I'd be doing that because, you know, even, even a year ago, I would have thought, oh, having a team, that's, who's got time for that? That seems like a nightmare. I don't want to deal with meetings. I don't want all this corp corporate BS. But now that I have a team, I'm actually really enjoying dabbling with the management side of things. And it, it feels like a superpower to be able to delegate stuff to other people. That's what I'm excited about these days. It's still early in your YouTube story, even with all the success. So what's next? What do you see happening in the next five years that might change the way you do things? Is it just delegating more and just doing more managing? Are you planning to go into Tech Talk and also build an audience there? Uh, yeah, this is something I think about a lot. Uh, I don't I don't really know where it's going to go. I'm not usually a fan of very long-term planning. But <laughs> because of this this book that I'm working on, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking that I want to be the next Tim Ferriss. And so Ooh. if my book can be really good and can potentially become a bestseller, then that would be an interesting path to becoming the next Tim Ferriss or the next Ryan Holiday or the next uh, Cal Newport. Cal Newport possibly more kind of similarity with because he's quite academic as well. I like the idea of being a legitimate author who has a YouTube channel and is a doctor on the side. <laughs> like that's kind of my dream. Sort of this, cr this cross between like a doctor, a teacher, a YouTuber and writer. If I can make that happen, then I think that would be really cool. Why do you think, and, and I know this is a conversation that in pieces we have had uh, as a group uh, off air, but why do you think writing the book gives you the legitimacy that having a large audience already doesn't give you? Yeah, it's one of those weird things. I'm not sure to what extent this is just in my head, but I think that there is still, still some like old world prestige associated with publishing it, like, you know, having a book with a publisher and it being like a bestseller. I think it does unlock more interesting opportunities, more interesting areas. Usually, for example, when it comes to speaking at conferences and speaking at corporate stuff, like they wouldn't hire someone who's a YouTuber, but they would hire someone who's a New York Times bestselling author. It's one of those weird things where maybe maybe it's not even that hard to become a New York Times bestselling author because there's like 100 people on the list at any one time. But there is still some level of old school prestige associated with it. And maybe it's just me having a failure of imagination where I'm thinking that that feels like the next step. Maybe in reality, no one actually cares, but it feels like an interesting challenge. You and I know that when, when you're YouTubers, you have a lot of control. You, but you can basically have a video and get it done within like a few days and upload it. And that's really cool. Whereas doing this thing in, the, in this very old school model of traditional publishing, there are a lot more stakeholders. There's a lot more trying to convince people to buy your thing. And it feels like a pretty fun challenge at this point which is another reason why I'm, I'm keen to try it out. Thank you so much for, for participating in this and sharing your story. I will be interested in knowing how the story changes after the book is out. But nonetheless, it's just fascinating to see how different all the, how different and still similar all the stories that I have heard are. 
So thank you so much for this. Nice. Thanks for having me on, man. This has been a lot of fun.